This is the Airplane Geeks podcast, where we aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. In this episode, we speak with Thomas D. Jones, a veteran NASA astronaut, scientist, author, pilot, and a speaker. In the news, the FAA orders Boeing 737 MAX 9 airplanes grounded after an Alaska Airlines incident. A JAL A350 collides with a Dash 8. A study says seating layout on the airplane can contribute to air rage. American Airlines launches its smart gating to reduce taxi times. And public charter operator JSX plans to buy more than 300 hybrid electric aircraft. All that and more coming up right now. So welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. I'm Rob Mark from JetWine.com. I'm sitting in for our fearless leader, Max Flight, who's off looking for his uh, voice. He's lost it. He has no idea where to find it. This is going to be episode 781 of the show where we talk aviation. We are joined by a band of rascals. Uh, from uh, Maine, we have our main man, Mr. Micah. How are you? Hey, great to see everybody. Happy New Year to you all. First time we've been together in the new year, and I'm looking forward to a really exciting show. Well, thanks for joining us tonight. And, uh, of course, from the East Coast also, we have uh, Mr. David Vanderhoof, our uh, uh, Airplane Geeks uh, historian, and also from the American Helicopter Museum. Thank you, Rob. And we're also joined by my buddy out on the West Coast, Max Trescott, uh, who is... uh, host of Aviation News Talk, uh, the podcast. He's a national CFI of the year and an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. And good evening to you, Max. Hello, Rob. Really fantastic to be back here in the new year, so it should be a fun fun time here. Well, is it is it fantastic just because I'm the first host of the new year? That's it. Absolutely. Yeah, so if I screw up, they'll probably say, well, that's what you got for getting rid of Max for a night. So, But listen, we're joined tonight by our, uh, our guest, uh, Thomas D. Jones, a veteran NASA astronaut, a scientist, an author, a pilot, a speaker. And uh, I, I think we're going to have some fun listening to uh, some of his stories uh, tonight about his time in space. And to give you just a quick rundown, in more than 11 years with NASA, he flew four of the space shuttle missions to Earth orbit, In 2001, Tom led three spacewalks to install the American Destiny Laboratory, the centerpiece of the International Space Station. Uh, He spent 53 days working and living in space. Notice we didn't say sleeping. I don't know. Maybe he did get to sleep. Uh, But uh, Tom's also an aircraft uh, commander on the uh, B-52D, and uh, he's studied asteroids and robotic exploration missions for NASA, and the part I like, engineered intelligence-gathering systems for the CIA. Uh, He's written a bunch of books that we're going to talk about. And what can we say? Tom, listen, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks. Great to be with a bunch of aviators and uh, aviation enthusiasts. And that's how I got my start in the whole air and space business, you know, back flying gliders uh, at the Air Force Academy. And, you know, it's just the, the road took off from there. So I'm glad to be with so many veterans of flight tonight. 
we're uh, really excited to have you here tonight. And um, let's see, I think that uh, we're going to have an awful lot to say about some of your uh, books and some of your projects. But before we do any of that, we're going to have to uh, chat about some of the uh, news that is uh, staring us in the face here about Earth-based aviation. All right, so are you guys ready? Ready from the West. Mainly ready. Ready from Delaware. So our first story uh, that's up is the uh, FAA orders the grounding of certain uh, Boeing 737 MAX 9 airplanes after an Alaska Airlines incident. Well, what we now know is that the 737 MAX 9 lost a door plug climbing out of Portland on Friday, and um, it was no small chunk of uh, real estate on the uh, side of the aircraft. It left a gaping hole in there. The uh, aircraft was about, I think, 16,000 feet when, when the door blew out, and uh, and so some things did go flying, and uh, luckily uh, nobody was hurt, and we had some uh, stories coming from uh, uh, NPR and uh, Micah, of course, uh, added something from uh, John Ostrower's uh, uh, The Air Current uh, magazine. And uh, we'll start in Max T. What, what do you think about all this? Uh, it's certainly progressed over the last few days, hasn't it? Yeah, it is a fast-moving story. And once again, Boeing is in the spotlight. And we thought we were done talking about the 737 MAX, but there is yet another uh, issue. I think the first thing to talk about is what is a door plug? I think that's something new to most of us. And this particular version of the uh, 737 MAX 9 has fewer seats than some versions. And so it didn't need as many emergency exits. And so they plugged two of the smaller ones from the inside of the airplane. It just looked like a normal cabin. From the outside, you could see that uh, the, that particular window was bigger than usual. So that's a door plug. What we've heard uh, most recently today is that when Alaska did some inspections, they found loose bolts in five of their aircraft uh, that were similarly equipped. Uh, so that may suggest either a manufacturing issue, possibly a maintenance issue. I'm sure the NTSB is going to be investigating all those things. A couple of the other things that were kind of interesting is that this wasn't a particularly old aircraft. It was delivered in October and it had problems in some of the prior days with pressurization lights that came on multiple times. And just the day before the uh, the incident, Alaska had restricted this particular aircraft to continental routes so that it wouldn't be flying overseas. Uh, and, and then I guess the, the interesting side thing is that we also had done a, a drop test of an iPhone. We've discovered that uh, two phones were sucked out of the cabin. They've been found. Uh, we don't know about one of them, but the iPhone was still working after uh, somebody found it as they were walking along the street. I, I think that uh, Apple is probably going to use that in some future uh, advertisement. Um, but what I what I think is interesting, too, is that the ramifications of that door plug leaving the airplane at 16,000 feet uh, are nothing compared to what would have happened if the airplane had been at, say, 35 or 40,000 feet, where the pressure differential would have, honestly, this would have been a disaster uh, with a hole that big in the fuselage. Any, God help, some poor flight attendant walking down the aisle or somebody uh, in the cabin that didn't have a seatbelt on, uh, or somebody holding a, a lap child that just happened to have the, the baby sitting there. I mean, this would have been a, 
a much, much more uh, awful story. But uh, again, the the 737s had a really storied history here uh, with the MAX airplanes. And um, the quality issues of the Boeings, they're just not what they used to be. And uh, and then again, the uh, finding today that there were more loose bolts in other airplanes. Uh, that's That's got to scare the bejesus out of everybody and say, well, my gosh, we've got to pull the sidewalls off of every Max 9 and, and Max Max aircraft, period, and pull them and make sure that there's not uh, some similar issue going on. And was it just that it wasn't tightened down, or was it some sort of structural failure? Well, the question uh, becomes, there's a number of different questions, but is this, real, is this a Boeing issue or is this a Spirit Aerosystems issue? Because Spirit manufactures the fuselages and installs that door. So did they miss the inspection? Did they not install it properly? Did Boeing not inspect it after they received the fuselage? There's a lot of different questions that go on. Or did it happen after it was received uh, by the, manuf- by the uh, airline and did they not do an inspection that they were supposed to? The good news is when the NTSB finishes up its investigation, they will know exactly where these bolts were installed, why they weren't tightened down, who did it, and over how long a period that person was working is to know which aircraft uh, to inspect and which ones to be grounded. Uh, it, well, it, it can't it, it can't be, Micah, it can't be just Alaska Airlines because United Tonight discovered that they had aircraft with loose bolts too. So it's got to be further upstream than just the airlines. Um, in their final assembly, because um, different air, different airlines have different final assembly procedures, so it's definitely either a Spirit or a Boeing thing. But bottom line is, Boeing's responsible for all the final checks that delivers that aircraft. That is true. And, of course, there's that other issue of uh, – go ahead, Mike. I could see you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say the other thing to, to remember, um, you know, we are – Many of us are not really a fan of Boeing any longer, and for good reason, based on what's going on. And the mission has changed from uh, building uh, kick-butt airplanes, as they did for decades and decades, to maximizing shareholder value. And that has really come out in the in the MAX series, as well as the 787s. And uh, I, I just... I just hope they get it together, but boy, they've had quite a few years now, and it doesn't seem like there are uh, too many changes going on. But the other thing I think I wanted to mention is that the uh, the maintenance logs on the the Alaska airplane showed that a uh, a pressurization light had illuminated a couple of times before this aircraft went out, which is why they decided not to take it across the uh, the Pacific to uh, uh, Hawaii. To me, if that had been my airplane, I said, you don't want this airplane to go out over the water because you're worried about a pressurization problem. I don't think I want to take this airplane. Go find me another uh, another serial number. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I realize we're Monday morning quarterbacking here a little bit. But, uh, uh, again, you know, it's it's really a shame that these things happen. But I could see the pilots, too, saying, oh, it's a brand-new airplane. It's probably a light. It's probably a, a sensor or something like that. And uh, But I think everybody, as you said, Micah, nobody feels the same way about Boeing that they used to. And um, I don't think that they're, uh, they're going to change their minds anytime soon. Well, let's move yeah. along to another. Oh, go ahead. 
just going to say one more thing, and that is that uh, I don't know if any of you had a chance to listen to the HCC transmissions, but the pilot was amazing. She was absolutely in total control of the whole thing, handled it really beautifully, and uh, something to really be proud of for, for Alaska Airlines and, and the passengers. She was right there and knew exactly what was going on, and, and her communication was top-notch. Yeah, and they made it back in one piece with no injuries. Uh, next story, class inequity fuels air rage. Uh, Max T, what is this one about from AvWeb? <laughs> well, so we've all seen the phenomena of uh, aircraft rage where passengers are up in arms and literally uh, getting into fights in the cabin, sometimes uh, tangling with flight, uh, with flight uh, attendants. And I think we've all been curious just as to why that is. Uh, this seemed to spike quite a bit during the uh, the pandemic. It turns out that there's a study that came out from Princeton University where they were trying to figure out whether or not this is possibly impacted by airplane configurations. So essentially what they found was, yes, passengers who have to walk through first class on the way to economy are more likely to get in fights and be upset. And I guess that's because, you know, they've, they've seen how the other half lives <laughs> up front. And uh, that fuels apparently a little bit of uh, rage on aircraft. So rather unexpected. I never would have thought, thought this could be the case, but fascinating study. Well, of course, I, I personally have never felt that because I always thought if I wanted to sit up there, I, all I had to do was pay the extra few thousand dollars and I could be sitting up there in one of those comfy seats. But Micah? Yeah, I, I don't know if I buy it because we've had passengers in first class act up almost as much as passengers in the back. I think it has a lot more to do with alcohol and just a lack of courtesy that we see in society these days because there are too many other places where this could happen. I would like to see the, the, the actual statistics of, of the study and, and how they parse this out. It, it just, I don't know, something about it just doesn't sound right. It, it, it sounds very, uh, I don't know, one of those very strange studies. Well, of course, we're also just basing what we're speaking about on the conclusions that they gave us in the story. Uh, and there may be many more uh, insights if we'd had the opportunity to look at the research uh, more closely, Micah. So maybe that's a, an interesting, uh, we'll have to ask Russ Niles down at uh, AvWeb if he can uh, put us on to the actual story or the actual research, but uh, I didn't want to forget the story about the uh, Hanita accident. And, yeah, I was uh, going to say, Rob, that that goes right along with your latest Jetwine post almost. And, and that is an interesting point, Micah, because, the, of course, the Hanita accident is the one in which the, uh, uh, the uh, Airbus landed on top of a, uh, a Dash 8 out at, uh, in Hanita uh, in Japan uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's it's amazing that the only people that that were uh, killed were the people in the Dash 8, except for the pilot, who uh, apparently was very seriously burned. And I, I don't know what, what his state is at this point. But, uh, uh, you know, again, everybody got out. But, of course, I, I think the, uh, the other part of the story is that it took what seems like a relatively long time to evacuate the aircraft. And uh, they're saying 18 minutes, but we don't know when that 18 minutes was, act when the clock actually started on that, uh, because it took the aircraft a while to slow down as it was skidding along the runway, you know, on fire. And it was not a pretty sight for anybody that saw the, uh, the video. And uh, I, I think what I happened to say, I was talking to a flight attendant friend of mine uh, last week, and 
you know, we just got talking about the differences between the uh, the passenger base that would have probably been on board in at, at uh, Haneda, and uh, if uh, she's a U.S. based flight attendant, and uh, what it would have been like if that happened here in the U.S. And she said it would have been a very different kind of a uh, result, I think, because uh, as as Max uh, and you and uh, we, we've spoken about that. Uh, People are just not real nice on U.S. airliners anymore, and uh, they're not very cordial. Uh, they're not helpful, and um, uh, they, uh, of course, and when you mix alcohol in with all of these situations, she said it. You know, people would have been dragging their bags, their carry-on bags, with them, and other things. And there have been other issues uh, that have been raised on the. Uh, at Jetwine about, you know, the, the, the people, if they had been, uh, uh, you know, uh, having problems getting around, maybe they used, uh, uh, you know, uh, wheelchair or crutches or a cane. What's the other thing? What's that? What are those sticks you put under your arms when you walk, when you've got a broken leg? What do we call those darn things? I don't know. I have a lot of different crutches. <laughs> oh God! All right, I'm sorry. That's what I get for forgetting. But uh, but again, and I I really uh, I really did think, man. I said she had a point I had not even thought of, and that's what made me write that. But it uh, it's scary to think that uh, we could have people arguing uh, in the aisles trying to get things down out of overhead compartments uh, and. Uh, Uh, with people backing up behind her because in the Haneda accident, only three of the eight exits were even available. Uh, And and that's kind of a a training nightmare for for cabin attendants. Oh, you know, you've got this emergency evacuation, but three of the eight exits don't work. Holy smokes. That's a lot of of folks to get off the airplane quickly. Uh, but, But everybody did get out. You know, the plane's on fire, the PA system isn't working, and the passengers responded to what the flight attendants had to say through their their handheld megaphones. From what I gather, from what I've heard, that 18 minutes, 10 minutes of it was the pilot on his own going through the aircraft to make sure it was fully evacuated before he left the aircraft, and that's the right thing to do. Very, very amazing. Yeah. We talk about emergencies and training all the time, but when the you know when it hits the fan it's often not anything like what we saw in training and we're we're forced to put bits and pieces from various scenarios together to try to come up with a a solution uh but again i'm glad everybody pretty much got out of that uh except of course for the crew on the dash 8 who seems to have been someplace they should not have been on the runway and uh, part of the problem, they believe, might go to the fact that the uh, the runway stoplights along the uh, edge of the runway were not working at Haneda. Uh, but the uh, the fact that they were out uh, was buried in the notum, and uh, it's it the, the notums can be very hard to find, and they're not prioritized at all. So uh, you almost have to go through them all. And this is uh, in terms of what the flight attendants did. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, Brian Coleman and I, you know, we talk about this on the Journey as a Reward when we do that podcast uh, regularly. We we talk about how each of us individually, when we board a flight, we always give gifts to the flight attendants. And Brian started this, uh, but and I took it from him that I say I want to give you this to thank you for what you're doing and the fact that I'm aware that you are here to uh, save my ass, not kiss it. <laughs> Well, 
Well said, uh, Micah. Uh, well, let's move on to our next one. Uh, Max T, another story that you grabbed off the wire, uh, smart gating, which I found really fascinating, uh, especially because I'm here in Chicago and there's nothing worse than when I used to fly American regularly and we'd get up to Chicago early and they'd say, you're going to have to go in the penalty box because there's no gate for you. And then we'd sit out there for half an hour and it was just frustrating as all get out. But Max, so what do we find? Well, I think sometimes the taxi times at O'Hare are longer than the flight time. So I can understand that. (laughs) Uh, So airlines, like most companies, are always striving for greater efficiency. And when you've got extremely expensive aircraft that may cost $100 million, you're trying to utilize them as much as possible and squeeze every second out of every process, whether it's the boarding time or flight times or taxi times. The uh, thing that they've done here apparently is that they are using machine learning, which is a form of artificial intelligence, to reduce taxi times by up to 20%. So they said that uh, based on what they've done so far, uh, they're saving over 17 hours uh, per day throughout the system. Obviously, if all that savings were in one aircraft, you could could probably launch uh, three, four more flights a day and get even better utilization out of the aircraft that you have. They don't give a lot of details on exactly how they're doing it, uh, but you know, machine machine learning is essentially uh, you know it's computer science. It uses uh, data and algorithms to try and imitate the way that humans learn, and then it gradually improves its accuracy over time. Uh, you know, pretty much on its own, just by getting more and more data. So interesting that they're uh, using it to look at something that most of us probably hadn't really thought about. Well, I think it's interesting also that uh, they didn't mention whether they'll be sharing that technology with their comrades at United and Delta and uh, and Southwest, but uh, perhaps for a price, who knows? But that's a that's a significant uh, fuel savings that they're they're speaking about here. So, uh, you know, I think it's a great idea. And moving on to our uh, our next story, JSX plans to add more than. 300 hybrid electric aircraft to its fleet uh, in the years ahead. Um, This came to us from AIN, my buddies over there. And uh, Max, what did this uh, story, uh, what kind of knowledge do they share with us on this one? Well, it's kind of interesting. We've got a lot of uh, hybrid aircraft that are under design, but not too many applications where, you know, we know for sure where they're going to be uh, used. But this is a huge commitment to, to to put an order in for 300 of these aircraft. JSX, of course, is the uh, charter operator that flies scheduled flights in a, you know, a special little area of, uh, you know, FARs that uh, permit them to do that, provided they use uh, aircraft that have uh, 30 seats uh, and under. And what they've done is they've they've bought the 82 nine-passenger uh, take, short takeoff and landing aircraft from Electra and up to 150 19-seat aircraft uh, from Era and 100 from uh, Hart Aerospace, a uh, 30-seat version. So they're putting in a rather large commitment. Uh, they don't tell us where they're going to use these uh, aircraft. My guess is it's probably pretty short-haul routes, uh, probably uh, to either some of their hubs, uh, in the metro areas, but uh, we're getting closer and closer, I think, to seeing uh, hybrid aircraft being deployed. Right now, they're saying that uh, these will be in service by, I believe, uh, 1928, uh, t- 2028. There we go. I'm off by 100 years. Well, and of course, the one thing that is kind of a problem uh, with any of the uh, hybrids and the electric aircraft is that none of them are certified 
we're we're uh, talking about it's coming it's coming it's coming and uh, i i remember when uh, dayjet was here and they were going to order a thousand uh, uh, eclipse jets because the the vlj movement the very light jet movement was going to darken the skies with uh, with uh, charter jets and of course that never happened i'm not saying that this isn't going to happen i'm just a bit you know I'm kind of a Missouriite on this one. Uh, you know, show me the, show me the, no, I was going to say show me the money. No, that's not the Missouri, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you know. The show I'll, me I'll, state. The show me state. Uh, and they didn't say anything about money during that, uh, when they did that. But uh, so again, some of these are, are really exciting sounding. But again, can they make them and can they make them operate efficiently uh, and and make them operate to the to the design standards in a real life situation where the weather's changing uh, because most of these don't have terribly large range numbers on them uh, so I, I wouldn't imagine the uh, uh, the uh, you know extra uh, oomph to keep them going if they have to hold or uh, divert back to a uh, another airport is going to be uh, is going to be too high but uh, we'll see. You know, this story reminds me so much of nuclear fusion and lighter-than-air cargo aircraft because I remember reading about both of those when I was a kid in Popular Mechanics. And, you know, ever since the 1960s, they've always been just 10 years away. So I'm sure we will we, we will see this happening sometime in the next 10 years, just like we'll see nuclear fusion and, and, and blimps. Well, you figure with more than 200 companies uh, doing some version of an eVTOL, most of those companies will not survive, and there's just going to be billions of dollars of venture capital left on the on the wayside. But still, it's interesting that some operators are putting down large commitments, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Well, I think it's time for us to move on to our guest segment. And uh, again, I want to uh, uh, welcome our guest, Tom D. Jones, a NASA astronaut, a scientist, an author. And we, we cut out a few of your extra qualifications there for time, uh, Tom. But listen, welcome to the Airplane Geeks. Glad to be here with you. Hey, listen, it's nice to have you. And so, you know, for some of our listeners um, that are of my particular age group, NASA is the long-standing uh, organization that brought us uh, uh, Mercury and Gemini and Apollo and who knows what other uh, uh, yummy uh, treats to uh, tantalize us uh, when we were teens. And now, of course, the, the whole world of uh, space travel has changed. But I'm just curious, what got you interested? Did you always want to be an astronaut when you were a kid? Well, I wanted to be a third baseman like Brooks Robinson growing up in Baltimore. <laughs> uh, that was first. But then uh, by about age 10, I was aware of the space race in the 60s and uh, all the importance that was being attached to the competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and space. So uh, luckily for me, the space race just came to my hometown because in the eastern suburbs of Baltimore where I lived, uh, the Martin Marietta Company was – um, building the rockets that took the Gemini astronauts into space. So as, as a Cub Scout, I got to go on a field trip to the rocket factory, and there were these 200-foot-tall missiles, Gemini um, 7 and 8, I think, were being checked out in the vertical test stands there. You got to see the Titan twos. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. A couple of them. So that was just a real-world experience where you looked up at these 100-foot-tall missiles and said, wow, that's got to be a cool job to ride one of those. And 
that's sort of what caught my interest. And then there were things like Star Trek and the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then Neil and Buzz and Mike all went to the moon for real. And I thought, that's a really cool career to pursue. So, And back then, it was all military test pilots flying for NASA. And I thought, that's what I've got to do to qualify to get into the space program to help them explore. And I had to become a professional aviator and, and get some qualifications in that regard. So that's why I went pursued a, an appointment to the Air Force Academy uh, to become an Air Force pilot. Well, you know, I got to ask you a question about that. You were introduced to us by a good friend of the show, a friend of ours, Bill Barry, who uh, who we, we yeah. know and love and, and understand that you, you guys know each other pretty well. And, and you know, Bill started off at the Academy as well, and he was a KC-135 driver. And you were a B-52 driver. I'm wondering if you ever compared notes. Did you? Uh, did Bill ever pass gas to you? I, I'm just curious if you've ever oh figured God. that out. <laughs> Probably a good chance that that happened, yes. But you know, I've, I was based in Texas, in Fort Worth, at Carswell Air Force Base back then during the Cold War. And Bill was flying, you know, out of Pease or someplace up in New England somewhere. And so, I, you know, geographically, that lowered the odds that we would have actually flown together. But, you know, I saw his colleagues and compatriots flying the KC-135s in front of us every mission that I flew. So it was really a, a challenging job for them to do their their work correctly and rendezvous on time and feed us the gas. And for us, it was a, a flying challenge to actually fly formation and receive uh, our air refueling uh, offload from those tankers. So, you know, in the years that we've been uh, collaborating and talking about space history, um, we, we have talked about flying quite a bit. And we both experienced the same Cold War atmosphere where we sat nuclear alert duty for one week out of three uh, living out on the base in sort of a jail, <laughs> waiting for the, the klaxon to sound in, in case the Ruskies were coming. So that was our business for the, the years that we did that. Wow. I, I mean, that sounds like my time doing uh, Part 135 uh, Charter on demand, but we were never out there for a solid week at a time. But they always felt like you guys never needed to sleep, didn't they? Well, they could uh, pull an alert exercise any time of the day or night. So uh, they, I think they tried to be nice to us in the training uh, schedule to try to do it during daylight hours, you know. But uh, there were times when every now and then we had to do an alert and wake up in the middle of the night, throw your flight suit on, run out to the airplanes, cartridge start the engines, and and then charge out to the runway if necessary as part of the exercise. So you had to be ready to do that because that was the deterrent, that, that we would be airborne in X minutes after getting the, the alarm and then be on our way in the air to escape from the base and escape a targeting by, you know, by an ICBM. So we had to convince the Russians that we could do that, and that's why we had to train to that, uh, that level of proficiency. So there you are in, 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 in the front of a, a B-52 uh, in the cockpit there. How did you end up getting into a NASA class? Well, I still wanted to be an astronaut, and my hope was that I would become an Air Force pilot, then I'd be a fighter pilot, then I'd be a test pilot, and then NASA would just come knocking at my door and come and grab me. Um, but that's not the way the Air Force works. You know, you, you realize you're part of a huge organization, and to look at the assignments that we got out of pilot training, the, the top students got to put on their priority list of preferred assignments were what you'd like to fly. I, I put down F-15 or F-4, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. But then there's the omniscient Air Force computer down in San Antonio that says, uh, we have too many applicants for fighter pilots on this go around. Let's let's give Strategic Air Command some, some good pilots. And so they'll apportion a few of the graduates out to SAC. So I got my next to the last choice, uh, thanks to that computer, 
And I was really discouraged. It was really a, um, a blow to my professional hopes. But I did have some good instructors that had helped me through pilot training. And they said, look, you're going to fly a challenging airplane that is going to teach you a lot of good airmanship. And you're going to work with five other individuals on the crew. So you're going to learn how to be a good teammate, follower first, and then maybe a leader as an aircraft commander later. And so that prediction turned out to be right. The, the crew training that we did and the and the flying skills that you needed to develop to fly the B-52 well were really good preparation for what I did on a crewed spaceship, you know, a space shuttle with five or six crew members on board. So I didn't know it at the time, but that disappointment turned out to be very good preparation for maybe a dozen years down the line being ready to be hired by NASA. Oh, so to finish the story, um, NASA was flying the space shuttle while I was uh, a bomber pilot. And the new shuttle had scientists and engineers on board, and science was my favorite and best subject in school. So I thought, if I can brush up my science skills and earn an advanced degree there, I might have qualifications that might interest NASA. So I got a PhD in planetary science after I finished my Air Force flying. And I think the combo for me of jet experience plus uh, the degree in planetary science studying the solar system was an interesting uh, resume for them to look at. So I got turned down twice, to be sure. But on the third try, I did get hired in 1990. So uh, it was a, only 29 years from the time I was a 10-year-old looking at Titan IIs till the time I flew in space. Yeah, but what did you think the first time that you, uh, you launched in the, in the shuttle? It was all worth it. <laughs> the, whole, the whole preparation process was 100% worth it. And, you know, I... I wasn't really surprised at that reaction because I'd been an astronaut for almost four years by then. And uh, I'd talked with all of my veteran crewmates who had been up there in space. My first flight, I was the only rookie on board. So they gave me some of the space secrets and what it would feel like. And the simulator that NASA has teaches you about how the flights unfold and the ascent, that particularly dynamic and exciting phase of, of flight was, was, uh, the, was taught to us over and over again. I even got a centrifuge ride that uh, put me up to three Gs for the shuttle's flight profile on launch. So I had lots of preparation. I knew what was coming. Uh, but nevertheless, it's it's the most exhilarating physical experience professionally that I'll ever have. It's just an amazing ride to get yourself going five miles per second in eight and a half minutes. It's it's incredible. I, I want to ask you a question about that. And, and I don't want to sound stupid and ask you stupid questions that everybody asks astronauts. Um, but, it's, but it's probably going to be one of those anyway. And I apologize in advance, but, but here you are. You're on STS-59. Okay. It's your first flight. Now you're a mission specialist. You have things you need to be doing while, while the, while the aircraft is, is taking off while you're in launch. And how much time did you have to pay attention to what was going on around you and really experiencing the launch versus performing your mission as to what's going on. Did you have the ability to actually perceive what was going on at the time that you were actually flying and, and feeling those G's and, and experiencing that excitement? Uh, again, that's probably a dumb question, but I just, there's so much you have to do. People think astronauts are just lying there in the ride and you're not. No, you're not. Uh, but I did over my four flights, get a variety of experiences during launch. So the flight deck crew, there's four people up there. There's the two pilots in the front seats and then there's the flight engineer in the middle behind them. And then just to his right is uh, mission specialist number one, who's a, a, again, a, a checklist uh, reader and a, 
a crew coordination specialist helping the other three guys get the flying done. But downstairs, you know, there were two other people on my first flight, and I was one of those people downstairs in the mid-deck. And guys, there's no instrumentation down there at all. You're sitting there in a seat strapped in looking at the wall with a bunch of storage lockers in front of you. The only instrumentation is one altimeter that shows you the cabin altimeter, and that's important if you have to egress and bail out at altitude. And you have a stopwatch and you have a checklist. So you can follow along and you know the sequencing because you've trained so much on that. But my, I didn't have any role on ascent other than to be quiet and be, you know, mindful of what was going on in the spacecraft. So I took advantage of that. So it was my first trip, but I had a little, uh, micro cassette recorder and I recorded the, the, the noises of engine ignition and liftoff. And then we had our, our helmets down and I wasn't on a live microphone. So we had our visors closed and our suits were pressurized. But after two minutes into the ascent, the boosters peel away. You all remember that. And then at that point, you're back on the main engines. You drop down to about 1G in acceleration. All the vibration goes away and you're still being thrust towards orbit, but at a very uh, sedate level of, of acceleration. So at that point, you can open your helmet visor and now you're sitting in the cabin. You can talk. So I just, I'm not on the hot mic. The guys upstairs are talking on the hot mic on the intercom, but I could just sit there with my micro recorder and I could just say, this is what I'm feeling now. It's two minutes into the flight. It's three minutes into the flight. We're building up G's to now two G's of acceleration. And I'm hearing Mach number calls from the pilot upstairs, you know, Mach 7, Mach 10, Mach 12. The amazing thing, and I'll just end the story with this, is that um, you had to get to Mach 25 to get to orbital velocity. It took us six minutes to get to Mach 12. And then in the remaining two and a half minutes, we went from 12 to 25. Ooh. That's eye-watering. Wow. Boy. You double your speed in the last couple of minutes. Wow. That is absolutely amazing. And you feel that. You, you are pushed back three Gs of acceleration for the final 90 seconds or so. So you do feel that process. And you're just in the middle of this big physics experiment you know, with Isaac Newton in control. It's amazing. And how long, roughly, from launch to uh, orbit, uh, to achieving orbit? Shuttle was eight and a half minutes, eight and a half minutes. And, you know, the new SpaceX Crew Dragon, it gets there in about uh, the same amount of time, actually, just a few tens of seconds on either side of that. I think they have a higher peak acceleration, so they probably get there in like eight minutes. They go to four Gs, I believe. So you're an author. I mean, you have, what, five books out now? I, I, maybe I miscounted, but I think it's... Uh, probably, probably five adult books, sure. Everything from planetary science to aviation, World War II aviation history to um, the Space Shuttle Stories book that's the brand new one. The Space Shuttles, you, you wrote a, a biography, Skywalking, and, and this Ask the Astronaut, so you had a chance to talk about your experiences. What made you decide with Space Shuttle Stories to really do the historical... Uh, the historical writing of interviewing and finding out what it was like from all the other astronauts mm. that you could talk to that, that flew. Right. I, I got to tell my story in, in Skywalking and a number of astronauts, you know, a dozen or more have written pretty good bio, uh, autobiographies of their experiences. And so you can pick and choose from those. Um, but there was no comprehensive oral history of the 30 years of the space shuttle. And so 10 years after the shuttle retired, I was sitting looking for my next project and thought that um, I'd never really had a chance personally to talk to a spectrum of astronauts across the 30 years. I knew my crewmates' stories and my classmates' stories, the guys I went to astronaut school with pretty well. But I hadn't had that casual, you know, relaxed conversation about the 
peak experiences from the guys 10 years before me or 10 years after me. And so I wanted to fill that hole in the historical record. There were a number of good technical histories about the shuttle. NASA's written a few, and Dennis Jenkins has written some excellent space transportation systems shuttle program histories on the technical detail of the program. But the human element was missing. So I said, it's time for me to take on this project. Now, there are 355 individuals who flew on the shuttle over 30 years. No way I could talk to everybody who flew the shuttle. But there were 135 missions. I thought, I can talk to one person from every one of those missions. And it might take me a couple of years to get the interviews done. In fact, it took two and a half years to get all those interviews done. But when when COVID hit, I had the Zoom capability that we all use so much. And I just started talking to people from STS-1 back in 1981, the very first Columbia mission, all the way to the final mission on Atlantis, STS-135. And I, I had a, the great privilege of talking to some people that I'd never casually spoken to about their experiences in space. It really was a, um, a surprising and, and really rewarding experience to research that book. I haven't read the book, I'm sorry to say, but but I know that you spoke with Fred Hayes, who just has an amazing story just in general as an astronaut. Mm-hmm. Did you able to get a chance to talk with John Young and some of the other older astronauts that flew the shuttle and were involved in some of the older projects from NASA? Well, that, that was part of the challenge was that uh, I started in 2020 and I found that, you know, Fred was one of the first guys I talked to because he'd done the approach and landing tests where we dropped Enterprise off the 747 and he flew it down to demonstrate its landing capability. And I did talk to him and, and recently I put his interview up on my blog, but some astronauts had already passed away. So John Young was gone, even though he was one of my instructors in the shuttle. And I flew the T-38 with him dozens of times during my career. So that's a a, a guy I'll never forget. But I couldn't interview him for this book project. Fortunately, in the case of John, I had his co-pilot, uh, Bob Crippen, to tell me about STS-1. And another example, Ken Mattingly, who was an Apollo uh, flyer, plus a shuttle commander. He was in his early 90s by the time I began this work. And so he wasn't giving interviews anymore. But Ken had given 20 years earlier a NASA oral history interview to Johnson Space Center people. And so it was on the on the Internet via the NASA website. I was able to get Ken Mattingly's voice, even though his pilot had gone west already. He was the only guy left from STS-4. But I got his voice from 20 years earlier and was able to get that that voice for that uh, complete roster of missions. You know, that's unbelievable. I mean, we look at the uh, how space has changed from the uh, early days that I remember, the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and and now we're looking at, you know, the Artemis mission and SpaceX wants to go to the moon. And I mean, it's all really, the, the, the missions look like they are much different, aren't they? Well, we've shifted focus to deep space. And so here you've got to really remember that for you know every pound that you want to put on the surface of the moon, it takes 400 pounds of fuel on the launch pad to get that pound on the surface of the moon. So uh, the shuttle was a low Earth orbit vehicle, and so it could carry six or seven people to orbit and stay up there for a couple of weeks, but that's as far as it could go. And now when you shift to deep space, you can't afford the luxury of wings and wheels to get yourself back to a runway. So now you've driven yourself into the design of a spacecraft that just uses parachutes to come back home. And just like the Apollo system uh, did. So um, at different kinds of spacecraft uh, in the commercial sector, they're trying to save money. So again, they did away with the runway landing capability. They splashed down either in Utah or, you know, in the ocean in the case of SpaceX. So different designs, but because 
the shuttle built this technical bridge to the 21st century during its career. We knew what worked and we knew what didn't work thanks to that long career of the shuttle. And so the the designs that we're using now in, in 2024 have benefited from that and they're more economical. They're certainly safer and less fragile than the space shuttle was. And they have a crew escape system on all of these new vehicles that is much more robust than the shuttle could ever provide. It was very, the shuttle was a very fragile experimental vehicle and wasn't designed with crew escape in mind. It was supposed to be an airliner type operation. And when we found out via Challenger that it was not such a vehicle, it was too late to retrofit it uh, at any reasonable cost to provide complete crew escape capability. So, you know, we lived with the risk for the rest of the shuttle's career and you know, we paid for that with the, the Columbia accident again. Um, but these new ships, they'll be at least 10, probably 100 times safer than the shuttle was. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, we look at the the last uh, uh, mission to the moon was, what, 45 years ago, 50? 72. So it was 51 years ago, 52 years 51. ago. 51. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and now uh, we're just now in the last year or two starting to talk about the moon again did did it cross your mind that there would be this big a gap between uh, moon flights uh, you know, from earthlings well my expectations had to be readjusted and and i had to learn about the real world along the way you know the the promise when i was hired as a new astronaut in 1990 was that i'd be part of president bush one's uh, space exploration initiative where we were going to go back to the moon within 10 years i'd be part of that and then we go on to Mars by 2020, by 2019, when the, the Apollo anniversary rolled around, 50 years since Apollo uh, 11. And guess what? The political winds changed and uh, President Bush was no longer president. The Clinton administration decided to build a space station instead. So that was my job. The cl- my class of astronauts helped uh, build the space station over a, about a 10-year period there and got it going um, before the shuttle retired. So, you know, my my am- ambitions to go to the moon, like my heroes, John Young and, and Neil Armstrong, didn't come true. But I got to do something different that was just as rewarding, I think. And now I get to live vicariously through some of my colleagues who once flew on the shuttle, but now are part of the astronaut corps that might you know, get a chance to put boots back on the moon. So I'll, I'll live through their experiences and be quite excited by it. But you got to be your, your own spacecraft. I mean, you, you flew the MMU. Did the MMU. That, that was in the 80s only. And so by the time the Challenger accident occurred, they decided to retire the, ex- the ex- expensive capabilities of the MMU, the man maneuvering unit that George Clooney flew in the movie, uh, you know, Gravity. Um, it was a tremendously um, capable jetpack, but it wasn't necessary for the jobs that the shuttle had to do going forward. So on the space station missions where I did my spacewalks, we had a little rescue jetpack. But it was much more modest and it sat at the bottom of our life support backpack. And if you fell off, you know, which would be a gross violation of you doing your job correctly, um, if you fell off, you could pull out a little joystick and activate this safer rescue jetpack and slowly with cold gas nitrogen jets, slowly fly yourself back to where you could grab onto some part of the space station and rescue yourself. Um, we've tested it in flight. But it's never had to be actually deployed in a real uh, emergency of somebody coming loose from the station. So do you think that all these decades of uh, uh, robotic flight that we've seen uh, since the shuttle, uh, you know, ceased to exist? I mean, has that actually provided us enough, uh, enough data, enough information 
to uh, safely put uh, or to safely look at putting men back on the moon? Oh, sure. We have the technical capability to safely put humans on the moon again. And I always get the question about why it's taking so long to do that. You know, we did it in 1969. Um, why is it so hard to, to redevelop that capability? Well, it, the, the Artemis program is much more ambitious than Apollo was. We, you know, we had two-day stays on the moons during Apollo. Um, the Artemis folks are planning two-week stays with crews of two or three or more. And eventually that will lead to an outpost, a research outpost that will be periodically visited by crews at the, for example, the South Pole of the Moon, where the, the water resources are. So the spacecraft have to be bigger. They have to be able to haul more cargo to the moon. That means you need a bigger launcher back here on the launch pad in Kennedy Space Center in Florida. You need a, a spacecraft that can linger around the moon for a month. That's the new Orion craft, uh, much more capable than Apollo was, uh, even though it looks like it's the same general gumdrop shape. And then we need a brand new lander uh, that's capable of landing all these critical uh, science instruments and mobility devices and components of an outpost. And that's where the commercial sector is coming in with Elon Musk and SpaceX. And they're worrisomely for me, a little behind schedule with the new Starship, but that's quite an impressive launch vehicle plus the Starship lander, which NASA will use. Um, and they, we need to make that thing work in the next couple of years or else the Chinese will be waiting to greet us when we get to the moon. Do mm. you think that's, uh, that, that's likely at this point? I would still say we have the inside track because we've done it before and we have a really innovative sector, space sector right now. Um, the Chinese don't have that. But if all they want to do is imitate Apollo and do it 50 years later, they can do that and be there physically when we're not. And that's what we have to avoid is the technical Sputnik surprise where we uh, we lose geopolitical face and our technological edge because they can um, just outpace us. If they can focus on that and put their minds to it, they have a real, real good chance of getting up there before we do. And so we have to pay attention to that. Tom, you and I are, are a lot of us here are of similar vintage and uh, and remember the space race and how the whole public was like, was go, you know, we, we were all behind NASA. We wanted to see us get to the moon It sort of died after Apollo 12. But, uh, but how do we get back to that? How do we get the public excited to, to, to get us back to the moon and get us to Mars? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you look at the history, um, even during the height of Apollo, only about 50% of the, of the public cared about the moon landings and su was supportive. A lot of the others, the, the other folks polled said, no, we should spend it on priorities here on earth. So they never had a huge surge of support, they had a lot of interest, of course, in seeing the first human walk on the moon. And I think when we return people to the moon and start tapping the resources up there, um, an entire generation of Americans who never saw this happen in real time are going to be amazed by the idea of another human being being on another world. So I think the interest will spike again once we see, with much better video quality, of course, people working up there for longer periods. And, you know, Right after that, we're going to have the commercial hotels in low Earth orbit where a lot of uh, citizens can just pay for a vacation up there. As the cost comes down with competition, it's going to be something that a lot of people will see as a reality for themselves. Now, maybe not going to the moon or Mars, but certainly getting a trip to visit space in their lifetime. So I think there's going to be a, a heightened interest, too. And um, I think uh, NASA will get the support it needs just, again, because of the the public surge in interest and the fact that people will realize that this is a real technical competition between us and China 
and and our other adversaries that we need to win. Well, you know, I wondered, you know, today uh, they they launched the Vulcan and uh, they considered it a a successful launch, and then they uh, right. said that the uh, the Peregrine somehow didn't get turned around so that the solar cells were facing the sun. And uh, is there a is there a way to save that, or is it pretty much uh, going to have to be written off? I've been following it today, and it looks like they did get their solar panel oriented to the sun. They charged their battery, mm. but the data they've got shows that they had some kind of catastrophic propellant loss, a tank rupture or something like that. And so that probably threw them off attitude to begin with. They're backtracking the sun now, but it doesn't look like they have the fuel to get to the moon. So um, it's hard to land on the moon. You've got to build deep space qualified systems. It's it's not a benign, as benign an environment as low Earth orbit where the shuttle and the space station are. Temperatures are more extreme, uh, different flight environment. And of course, the guidance system has to stick the landing. So it's going to be tough. But fortunately, you know, right on the heels of this successful Vulcan rocket launch today is going to be um, a Falcon 9 launch taking another company, commercial company carrying NASA payloads to the moon uh, in January. So th- there'll be another landing very quickly. We'll see if they can stick that one. Mm. So the the astronauts that are, are young people that are interested in being astronauts today, how would you say they differ from those early pioneer guys? Oh, I think that uh, folks today are not as focused in the, just the, the being first, you know, being the first people to put boots on the moon. Uh, and of course, it's there's no Cold War competition. There's not a crash program to get America there ahead of the Soviets. So it's a different look at it. It's people looking at now whether they can get a career that's exciting and rewarding for the bulk of their, their working life. And so I think they approach a space as an activity as something for the long term, rather than just, hey, I got to get there uh, and pr- contribute in the next five years and then I'm done. You know, I, I was worried that NASA would get to Mars by the early 1980s and I would never get a chance to help them. Um, I needn't have worried about that. So I think when I talk to school kids and I'm, I'm going to an elementary school tomorrow to speak, um, I'm going to talk about, you know, think about the long run. You know, you can be part of designing the spaceships that will take us to Mars or the experiment designers that develop the the instruments to help us detect life if it still exists there. Or you can be an expedition leader on one of those trips to the red planet, uh, you know, in a generation. But you got to start now at looking at, you know, just being part of this big team. And I do tell them honestly that the astronaut job was the best one I ever had. And it's a tremendously satisfying career when you can work with creative, intelligent, and funny, <laughs> just uh, friendly people from mission control to launch control and the technicians that get your rocket ready to your crewmates in space. It's just a tremendously rewarding um, environment to be part of this team that's all trying to do the same thing uh, together together successfully. So these days, would you give different advice for someone who is looking to join NASA? For example, you said you, the path, it, you know, the common wisdom was become a test pilot. Is that still the common wisdom today? Well, we still need test pilots, and NASA is still looking for qualified uh, professional uh, aviators with great skills. However, you don't have to be a pilot at all to apply to be an astronaut today. So NASA's current requirements are, you know, you have to have a science or an engineering degree. You have to have three years of work experience. You have to have a master's degree equivalent um, to successfully apply. And then you have to have general good physical health, too. So it's a little bit 
it's much more competitive than it was when I applied back in the late eighties and, and succeeded. I think the last time they applied, uh, they had a, they had a selection. They had 18,000 applicants and they hired about a dozen people. So it, it's hyper competitive and they they can really afford to pick the best people. So my advice is just be pick something you love in science or engineering and get really good at it because you love the subject. And once you've made yourself an expert, then you can start applying and NASA will be looking for someone who wants to be part of this great adventure. And uh, I think that you just got to have to be um, skilled and you have to have the expertise, but you also have to be determined and persistent because, you know, if you're just going to try once and walk away when somebody tells you, no, thanks, you're, you're dooming your, your fortunes. You've got to have the stubbornness, the determination, the persistence to, to keep knocking at that door until you get better qualified and can be competitive and do it. Um, a lot of my astronaut colleagues got turned down multiple times before they were hired. So that's, that's a trait that NASA does specifically look for is how keen are you on really winning this job one day? So it's, it's not all about the money, is it? <laughs> well, you know, who knows where that's going? Uh, if you are a NASA astronaut, you're going to be a government employee and you're never going to get rich. You'll live a a reasonably comfortable middle-class life. You know, you'll have a house and a couple of cars and you can raise your kids comfortably, but you're never going to get rich. Um, this commercial space sector though, boy, they can afford to pay the, the going rate. So if they need talent, they'll pay for it. And so I don't know what the astronaut wages are going to be for a SpaceX or a Blue Origin or a Sierra Space who are going to have their own private astronauts. And I imagine it'll start at the government salary and then take off from there. So um, sky's the limit, right? Wow. I guess it depends on how good a union they have to negotiate for their astronauts. <laughs> yeah. I do want, with this uh, group of panelists here, I do want to emphasize that aviation is a major plus in your resume. So if you are a pilot, uh, that's a big plus, even though NASA will give you aviation skills when you arrive. Um, and, you know, we, we flew T-38 jet trainers. They're going to transition to a, the new Air Force trainer, I'm sure, soon um, at NASA as well, the, the T-7, I think it's called. But um, it's... Aviation, an aircraft cockpit, is the closest analog to space flight and its dynamic environment and the skill and judgment that you have to exercise in the face of an emergency. Can I change the subject for a minute? You guys okay with sure. that? Um, Depends. Well. To what? Well, I've always been a fan of the P-47 Thunderbolt. It's like always been one of my favorite aircraft and uh, never got as much credit as it deserves. And, uh, I, you know, the Spitfire and a Mustang were really popular, but the P-47 was a real workhorse and just an amazing ground attack aircraft. And I guess it was probably the A-10 of its day for people who don't really aren't familiar with it. You wrote Hellhawks. It was one of your earlier books. How did that come about? What made you decide to get into, I mean, I think of a fighter squadron and Robert Stack and, and, and I see the jug and, and, and as the airplane geeks, we had an experience at the Uverhazi Center with their P-47, we were doing a show right in front of it, and we saw this older guy standing in front of it, and there's like a tear rolling down his eye, and he turned out to be a Peruvian P-47 pilot uh, huh. that flew in the Peruvian Air Force, and we interviewed him, he had his son translate for us, and he gave us his pair of Peruvian Air Force wings. Uh, <laughs> unbelievable uh, what happened. So it it's really holds a place in my heart. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about where that book came from and what made you decide to write that story. So I wanted to be a pilot because I read books in the 60s like Greatest Fighter Aces 
and books along those lines, or God is my co-pilot, mm-hmm. or you know something like that. So I really idolized those World War II pilots back when they were what they were, uh, you know, they were forty-five years old <laughs> at the time when those books were coming out. But um, those. Those flyers really excited me. And then I went to the Air Force Academy. And, of course, I met World War II veterans while I was there who were by then generals, typically. Um, and I learned about the Thunderbolt and, and its role as a fighter bomber. It, it was originally designed as a high-altitude interceptor. Uh, but then in World War II, uh, it was superseded by the Mustang and the escort role for bombers. And so the P-47, because it was so rugged and could carry such a payload, was um, – uh, destined for the fighter bomber role. And so in the European theater, it was designated to attack the German ground forces as well as tangle with the Luftwaffe if, if it had to. So I, I knew about that history, you know, being a cadet and, and loving aviation history. You know, here's the, here's the P-47 right here. So while I was a cadet, my roommate's dad turned out to be a veteran of World War II who flew the Thunderbolt in combat. And he was a member of the 365th fighter group, the Hellhawks, and they were three squadrons, about a thousand men altogether, maybe 120 pilots. And their job was to um, suppress the German army behind the D-Day beaches to attack any anything that moved on the ground, railroads, you know, convoys of trucks, uh, armor moving to the front. And that was their job to be the, the flying artillery for the GIs. So I talked to my friend's dad and he told me some of his war stories and that was in a, that was when I was a brand new pilot in the Air Force. And then, oh, 30 years goes by and I'm now out of NASA. And I think, you know, that story has never really been told the way I would like to read about it. Uh, that story of the fighter bombers in, in the European theater. So I went back to my friend's dad and he still had his unit's operational history that he could loan me as a book 600 pages long. And then I said, well, gosh, do you know any guys who, you know, from your unit who are still around? And I went, started going to their unit reunions, and I talked to dozens of his flying buddies. And they were all 20, 21 years old, 19 years old at the time they flew the Thunderbolt. And I got their stories on tape recordings, on my notepad, and I put that together with um, my co-author's research. And we did a, a book called Hellhawks about these, these elite fighter bomber pilots, you know, from D-Day to the Battle of the Bulge to the defeat of Germany. And we interviewed 80 combat vets for that story. And wow. most of them, sadly, have gone. But um, we got their stories in time. That's great. That's just wonderful. So they were, and it was, they, they were all they, based exciting, in exciting that, stories. Actually. Well, they started out in England. Um, they flew a few bomber escort missions to just learn the ropes. And then very quickly, they went to ground attack. And these were the guys who attacked the V-1 uh, buzz bomb sites in northern France. And then they, they supported the D-Day invasion. And they just shot anything behind the beachheads that moved. And they were... Um, they were equipped for air-to-air combat, and they had a quite a good kill ratio when they did tangle with the Luftwaffe, um, but that didn't happen very often. But most of the time, they flew down where all the steel and lead was flying around, and it was a very dangerous job. Just to give you an idea, 20% of the pilots in their unit were killed in action. Mm. Wow. Well, you know, I, I don't want to uh, miss the opportunity to, to say that the uh, – I mean, th- there's still an awful lot of unexplored territory in space uh, for anybody that might be interested in in uh, the world of space, isn't there? Uh, it's limitless. The opportunities are limitless, and I think the next big thing, you know, aside from going to Mars That's for good. the I was search ask for you life, that. <laughs> uh, aside from Mars and the search for life there, which is a quest for knowledge, 
I'm an asteroid scientist and the amount of raw materials on the moon and on the nearby asteroids is just an astonishing uh, resource for us as humans to tap into. So we do not live on a resource limited planet. We live in a solar system that has limitless resources. So if we need the things we need to um, make our living standards better and, and bring uh, a higher living standard to everybody on the planet, we can get those materials on the moon or on the asteroids. And so this commercial venture of moving into space and making a profit there is the most important development in the 21st century is to expand our economy out there to tap solar energy to feed the grid down here on the ground, to tap water out there to make rocket fuel to travel the solar system, and to tap the the metals and minerals that we'll need to power um, our economy for centuries into the future. Unbelievable. Well, th we really thank you for joining us tonight. And Tom, if people want uh, more information about you and some of the books you've written, uh, where would they find that? Yeah, my website is easy to find. It's just astronauttomjones.com. And if you go there, you'll, you'll find space shuttle stories and all the other titles there on the website. And you can go to the Smithsonian book site and you can read about the book and its background there. And of course, any online outlet will be able to, to allow you to purchase the books and your local bookstore can find it for you as well. So I hope you'll tap into some of those titles that we've talked about. And the new one I'm very excited about because the lessons that I captured in Space Shuttle Stories, even though it's the 30 years of the shuttle and that's a dozen years in the past, those lessons are directly applicable to how we're going to get back to the moon and go on to Mars. And if we forget them, we're going to have problems like we did with our two lost shuttles back in, in with Columbia and Challenger. So yeah. it's an important uh piece of history that we shouldn't forget as we move out into the solar system. Wow. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us on the Airplane Geeks tonight, and we hope we have an opportunity to, uh, to chat again. Smooth skies to everybody. Thank you for inviting me. Before you leave, did you ever read, uh, there was a friend of mine's uncle, uh, his last name was Ananian, Stephen Ananian. He wrote a short piece, you can find it online, called Ramrod to Munster. He was flying a P-47, got shot down over the channel, Ditched in the channel, was back in the air the next day um, because that's just what I, he did. I haven't seen that. Uh, I'll look it up. You look it up on Google, Ramrod to Munster, uh, Stephen and Annie, and, and it's, it's a great story. He wrote it before he passed a few years ago. Uh, the other question I had for you, just a little a more of a, a, a personal one. Um, I met years and years ago the when I was at the University of Southern Colorado, year after the Challenger disaster, I convinced this, this, the students were going nuts, as you can imagine, as everybody was, and was trying to figure out a way to, they wanted to end NASA, the NASA program. And I said, no, this is a reason we need to continue the NASA program because this is not what the astronauts would have wanted. And we became, they developed a, uh, with uh, my urging, uh, Space Exploration Awareness Day. And we ended up having Woody Spring come by. I ended up having lunch with him. And I'm wondering if, uh, if it, it, what, what Woody's doing now, I haven't seen him in, you know, 30, 40 years, but, uh, and, and, and I've, I've, you must have worked with him or at least met him, maybe interviewed him. I don't know. I interviewed him for space shuttle stories and he contributed one of the stories for his, one of his missions there in the book. And, uh, you know, he's, he was one of the, the first dozen years of the shuttle's history one of the astronauts who uh, initiated or inaugurated the shuttle. So he's retired, but he's still doing some consulting work on the side too, just enjoying life. And I'm sure he's as interested in uh, a show like this as I am. Thanks a lot for the conversation, guys. Have a great rest of the show. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Thanks so much for Thanks joining so us. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you.
All right. So moving right along, uh, we're going to hop on to what's up with the geeks. Uh, well, we can't ask Max East because he's out looking for his voice. Uh, uh, David or Max, uh, do either of you have anything to add? Well, let me go ahead and uh, talk about what I was doing in the first half of uh, December. Uh, I missed a couple of different uh, shows then. I went down to uh, Southern California, and I attended uh, a two-week course at USC, uh, the University of Southern California, which was their aircraft accident investigation course. And I had a great time. Uh, It was, um, you know, very, uh, you know, kind of illuminating a lot of different ways. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the the other classmates, we had about 32 people in the class, probably a third of them from other countries outside the U.S. Uh, and then if you look at the composition, uh, a significant number of people were from air forces from other countries. Uh, so they were flying either, uh, you know, military uh, fighter jets or flying helicopters. We also had uh, several people who worked for the equivalent of the NTSB in their country. And we had a handful of uh, general aviation uh, folks like myself, though. Uh, th- these were people who were uh, you know, sent there by their uh, their company because they were playing some kind of safety role at, at their company. The instructors were uh, amazing. Uh, I think almost all of them were former uh, NTSB investigators. Uh, they shared a lot of stories. Uh, they had been involved in a lot of uh, famous uh, investigations that were from, would be familiar to uh, you know, most people listening here. Uh, probably the best part was that in the back of the classroom and the, the other side of the building, they had probably eight or nine wrecks. Uh, so they were able to um, acquire the remains of uh, a number of different uh, aircraft accidents. And this made the class very, very hands-on. So whenever we had a spare moment, we could go down there and take a look at things. Uh, we had a couple different projects where we had to do some uh, mock investigations and we would use the wreckage and we would sort through it and we would try and figure out you know what we could learn from it uh, the big project for us for the final project was to uh, spend days probably the better part of a week well probably three four days working on an investigation of an mu2 accident uh, and then give presentations afterwards so really amazing course um, you know I think it filled in you know some of the gaps in my knowledge about uh, the aircraft investigation process learned uh, you know how to use some new tools and um, I guess anybody who's interested in attending you can certainly go to the USC website there's another similar course that's offered out of Oklahoma City by uh, some other group I don't recall you know what the group that is that offers it and I think Embry Riddle also has a a course as well. So anyway, that's what I was up to in December. Are you going to share uh, for the uh, the show notes that photo of you guys in the white suits? Oh sure, I can uh, I can definitely do that. So one of the things we uh, learned about was uh, protective wear uh, because it hadn't really occurred to me that when you're um, on a site, there's a lot of hazardous uh, materials, so fuel and uh, biohazards and all kinds of uh, things. Uh, and so we practiced getting in and out of uh, the bunny suits. And we've got, got a picture of uh, five of us in my group uh, as we were uh, you know, fully suited up. But you didn't get to keep the bunny suit. No. I would think that you also uh, you'd wear that because you also want to protect anything that you're investigating from you so that you're not contaminating anything. Yeah, I, perhaps they didn't talk about that. It's probably a little bit different from a you know, criminal investigation where you're worrying about contaminating things with the DNA. Uh, but sure, I'm sure there's there's some benefit to that. 
Well, and thanks for that, uh, uh, Max. I, I really uh, always, I actually always wanted to attend that. And uh, Tom uh, had invited me when I was still at uh, at flying, and I had hoped that I would have a a great way to uh, to go goof off and and really learn quite a bit. But unfortunately, that's not how the world worked. But anyway, as I mentioned earlier, Jetwine this week we did do a story that uh, kind of followed up on the. Uh, Hanita crash, wondering what it would be like, uh, what what might have been like if it had happened in the U.S. Uh, so stop by jetwine.com and uh, you can take a look at that. And Micah, I think you have something to talk about. Well, yeah, on uh, episode 60 of The Journey is the Reward that just came out last week, uh, Brian and I interviewed Captain Jeff Nielsen. Uh, he's a creator and the host of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast and a retired Delta captain. And yeah, we can now say that he worked for Delta. Not that anybody who listens to the podcast couldn't figure that out, but he always called it Acme. And we talk about why in the podcast. Now, APG, if you're not a regular listener to APG, it runs three hours. They do a three-hour show every week, and I don't know how they do it, and I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a lot. I listen to it, and it's a great show. But, you know, Brian and I, we do a podcast every couple of weeks, and we run about 45 minutes, maybe an hour. But when we had Jeff on, for some reason, the show ended up being two hours and 37 minutes long. Jeff just would not let go. And I suggested to Brian we break it up into two shows, but Brian said, no, this is going to be an APG tribute show. And we've already gotten a lot of email about it and all positive. So just thought I'd let our listeners know. It's a good one to listen to. Thank you so much, Micah. And uh, we've got a couple of uh, listener pieces of listener mail we want to talk about. A couple of weeks ago, I asked uh, some of our listeners if they were flight simmers because I'm uh, – uh, I'm hooked up here. I've got a uh, completely dedicated computer uh, to uh, to run Flight Sim and uh, X Plane 12 both, and uh, I've kind of been playing with them to see which one I like better. And uh, it it's, it's a toss up. The graphics on on Flight Sim are certainly better than the ones on X Plane, but X Plane's more of a real airplane uh, if you wanted to. Uh, uh, use it to, to, to stay current. Uh, but um, anyway, so we got a note from uh, Kyle, and uh, Kyle said that he's had uh, a, uh, a system that uh, kind of came down. Let's see, he uses X-Plane, and it's also a 1998 Microsoft Sidewinder joystick. And for those of you that didn't have a uh, Microsoft joystick like I did, that uh, it was considered the bee's knees back there in uh, 1998, and you could get them with uh, force, uh, force feedback so that if the uh, airplane stalled, the whole stick would shake and, and, and would make you think you were really going to uh, be in serious trouble. But uh, uh, So thanks for that, uh, Kyle. And uh, we would like to uh, see you get your uh, real pilot's license because Kyle lives up in the Twin Cities, not that far away from where they build the Cirruses. And uh, so we, we figured we'd send our correspondent, Max Trescott, up to Minnesota uh, very soon now since it's almost cold enough up there. And uh, you can report back if you, uh, if you do survive. Well, I've been in Duluth both in December and January, and I survived. And yeah, it's, uh, it gets cold up there. Oh, it does indeed. You can land on a lake without pontoon. <laughs> yeah, God. Okay, we had another note from D with a question. Uh, with the slow push around the world for AI, do you think we're going to see AI commercial aircraft entering uh, the, the flight world? 
Uh, is it slowly going to push human pilots out of the way for the next in the next decade or so? I, personally, I don't think there's a prayer. Uh, I mean, the the uh, pilots' unions are already upset about trying to get rid of the extra pilot on a two pilot cockpit, let alone uh, uh, you know trying to do them. Uh, uh, with uh, artificial intelligence, but I, I just know me, maybe because it's the way I grew up, but I would never get on an airplane with uh, one pilot and another guy connected to the ground uh, via radio or data link or something. Ain't happening, at least, I don't know, what do you guys think? Well, it's funny that he says uh, using AI. If you think about it, uh, I think they've been trying to automate aircraft long before we had uh, true AI. I think there's a tendency these days for companies that are working on something new and hot to kind of throw in the word AI, whether it's really, you know, AI or not. I mean, if I think of AI in kind of the, the classic sense where you're, you know, amalgamating knowledge from, uh, you know, virtually every source on the Internet. Yeah, that's not quite what it's going to take to, uh, to automate uh, commercial aircraft. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's probably like what we talked about with uh, electric aircraft. A lot of money is going to be spent on it, but we'll see how, how much of this actually comes to be. Well, you know, too, you see the uh, the, the state of the automation in just an SR-22, and it's, it's pretty damn sophisticated. Well, can I say that? I don't know. Maybe I can't. But... It's it's pretty darn sophisticated. In case Mike, uh, in case Max wants to add that in, but what I think is interesting is that um, uh, the the uh, technology uh, is so good that people can get in a Cirrus, take off, hit autopilot, and fly to wherever they're going. Shoot the approach on autopilot and pop off the autopilot when they're on, you know, a half mile final or so, and you completely miss the point. I mean, you're not having any fun flying the airplane. And uh, I, I know I, I talked to somebody a couple of weeks ago who said, I didn't like flying a Cirrus anyway. It wasn't, wasn't a fun airplane to fly to me. But I, I thought a Cirrus was a nice flying airplane. But, I mean, what do you think when you're not on automation, Max? You know, I like automation because really it frees the pilot up to, you know, use their their brain for other higher level type functions. If you think about it, the autopilot is doing the most basic thing that you know pilots do, which is kind of keep the the wings level. And if you wear yourself out trying to keep the wings level, well, you're going to be less tired, and your brain's not going to be focused on some of the bigger picture items that you should be thinking about in terms of, hey, is the weather changing around me, or should I be diverting to a different airport? How's my fuel supply? You know, all of these kinds of things. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of automation. Uh, that particular description of the, the Cirrus that you gave with a pilot who steps in and punches the buttons, I think that, that's the public's perception of what happens in the airlines. And, of course, we know that that isn't really true either. Well, that's only on the Airbus. You know, they have the takeoff button and the land button, you know, but but that's something else. But, no, the Cirrus is uh, – I was going to say the Cirrus is an, is, is an amazing aircraft, as I was able to find out back in August and uh, and and talked about it in my year-end review on uh, the Christmas show. I don't know if you got to hear it, Max, but I, I said in there that I would never doubt you again. It's just as wonderful <laughs> as you said. I missed it. I'll have to go back and listen. Well, uh, Max, in terms of your comment about uh, – keeping the pilot uh, um, busy uh, w- without keeping them busy about doing silly things. I mean, have you ever heard of the trim tab 
uh, you know, because if you trim it uh, properly, you can fly it uh, hands off. But I think a lot of people forget that. Uh, you know, but anyway. you know, it's funny. I was just uh, a couple of days ago. I gave a flying lesson to a helicopter flight instructor who'd had two prior flights uh, in a Cessna, and one of the points I kept making was, "Hey, you got to use that trim wheel." And there isn't really, uh, you know, an analog to the uh, trim wheel in the helicopter, so that was kind of a new experience uh, for her. And uh, you know, we c- continue to focus on, "Hey, this is going to be so much easier. Just use that trim wheel frequently." Well, and, and that's a good point. And in the helicopter, uh, you're, you're, without the autopilot on, you're, you're really moving all the time. I mean, the movements are very, very subtle after you get good at it, but you are kind of moving all the time. Uh, are you not? Oh, yeah, very much so. You, you, don't have a, you don't have a free arm or a free leg. Mm, wow. Unbelievable. Do the Robinsons have an autopilot system? Some of them do. I've I've only flown one that had it, and it's reasonably good. It's not quite as capable as some of the ones you'd find in uh, GA aircraft like the Cirrus, but uh, it definitely helps. Wow. Well, we've got one last note uh, from Mike Smith uh, related to the Collings Foundation, and uh, he said that he got a little more information from the museum uh, with uh, within the next three to five years. The Collings Foundation Museum plans to build an addition to the museum to house the aircraft that have been on the flying tours around the country. And uh, one of the docents uh, phrased it, quote, since the government won't give us approval to fly passengers, we can't afford to keep them flying, unquote. And, of course, uh, yes, that is true. Uh, but, of course, that horrible accident in the uh, B-17 a couple of years ago did kind of put the uh, the nail in the coffin there. But uh, uh, Mike went on to say that when I was uh, at the museum today, I noted they've added three more aircraft to the current displays. They, uh, they now have an ME-109, a P-40, and now they have an L-4 observation airplane. L-4, I don't know if I've ever seen one of those. Um, but a Hellcat fighter, a restored Dauntless uh, that they pulled out of Lake Michigan 50 years ago, uh, and it still has its uh, paint intact. And uh, for people that don't know about it, uh, Lake Michigan, uh, back in uh, the early days of World War II, had a, uh, a pretend aircraft carrier on it, and uh, they used to train pilots to, uh, to make carrier approaches and departures uh, here in the lake, and they lost a couple of airplanes. David, I can see you're about to say something. I say the L-4 is a J-3 Cub. Oh, I was going to say, take a yellow cub and paint it all drab, and you have an L-4. Yeah, and it says the U.S. Army Air Force ordered the first ones in 1941 for liaison and observation duties. Also known as the grasshopper. I don't know how many airplanes they lost in Lake Michigan, but they have been pulling fighters out of Lake Michigan just off the uh, shoreline of Chicago for as long as I've been flying. I mean, and every time I look, there's another... Uh, uh, you know, a, a fellow pull a um, uh, what's an F six, uh, David? Is that a, a is that a Bearcat? Hellcat. Hellcat. Okay, um, but the Wolverine and the um, which were the paddle wheel carriers that they used for Na- Naval Air Station Glenview for primary carrier training, which were basically paddle wheel steamers that they cut off the top and put a flat deck on. Um, caught because it was people learning how to land on aircraft carriers at the time, there was a lot of mishaps. What's fortunate about Lake Michigan, though, is 
it's one salt free. It's a freshwater lake, so you don't get the corrosiveness of salt. And number two, it gets very, very cold. So basically, you have the optimal conditions to preserve metal at the bottom of that lake. That's that's very true. And we, Thus, you can pull those aircraft out. We we hear about that all the time because people here in uh, Chicago want to take single engine airplanes across the lake over to Michigan. And in the wind, I don't even want to do it in the summertime. But in the winter time, I say uh uh-uh, uh because I think the uh, time of useful consciousness in water that's probably uh, I don't know. 40 degrees, uh, because Lake Michigan does freeze most of the time in the winter. And I said, nah, I'm not doing that. Sorry. I'll go around the south end and uh, uh, just be doing just dandy. But uh, so I think uh, anybody else have any other thoughts? No, everybody is shaking their heads. Well, hey, then I think let's call uh, this episode of the uh, Airplane Geeks uh, well, we'll uh, we should have a gavel uh, so that we uh, we can, uh, you know, just terminate the uh, episode. But maybe we can talk about that to uh, our esteemed uh, buddy Max Flight uh, if he comes back next week, um, and we hope he does. Uh, but hey, for that, uh, we want to thank you for joining us for episode seven eighty one of the Airplane Geeks, and uh, I hope we'll all see you next week. Well, actually, we won't see anybody. But it's kind of a figurative thought. But, uh, Micah, where, where can people find out more about you? Well, you can find me with uh, former Airplane Geeks produ- associate producer Brian Coleman on the Journey is Reward podcast. And uh, you can always reach me on Twitter. Uh, well, whatever the heck it's called now, Zitter X, I don't know. But you can find me there. I'm still there. And it's at Mainfly, M-A-I-N-E like the state, Fly, F-L-Y, at Mainfly on Twitter. I miss the little bird. Me too. And uh, David, how about you? Uh, You can find me at the American Helicopter Museum um, once I get back to getting there. Um, And, of course, you can find me on social media on X or Facebook or whatever. Just reach out to me. And Max T. Well, first, check out episode 309 of Aviation News Talk, where we talked about VFR into IMC and other recent loss of control accidents. And the best way to reach me is just go to aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact at the top of the page. Yeah. And what episode are you up to again? Uh, 309. 309. Wow. Wow. Catching up with the airplane That's, that's a lot of episodes. <laughs> Woo. Man, we got a long way to go to catch. Let you. We got to keep going or you're going to catch up to us. And so for Max Flight, uh, we're going to find him at 30,000feet.com, and uh, where he has the uh, his great index of uh, podcasts, who knows what, all kinds of great info. And Max, I know you're listening, and uh, uh, we all send you, uh, we're going to send you some cough drops and some tea and some soup, and uh, what else should we send him? Oh, a, a, yes, a, a cat cup to put your, uh, to put your tea in, but... Uh, in the meantime, uh, well, again, thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight, and thanks for uh, listening to the Airplane Geeks. We'll see you next week. Keep the blue side up. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>